You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading this afternoon comes from both of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, and then we'll also read a passage from 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23 to 2, verse 17. But first, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. You are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? And have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually moral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Then over to Second Corinthians. We begin reading at chapter 1, verse 23. And we'll read to the end of chapter 2. I called God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, 
so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes." Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them, went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. This afternoon we consider the teachings of God's Word as they have been summarized by the church in Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. First question, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, People who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Beloved in the Lord Jesus, just a moment ago we sang Psalm 95. That psalm starts off very nicely with praise to God in the, the first stanza. In the second stanza, we find a recognition of the greatness of our God. And then in the third stanza, there's a call to worship. Come, let us worship and bow down before this God of great renown. 
But then we get to stanzas four and five, and some of us are probably thinking, those are better left out. A psalm that started off so positive ends in such a negative way, on such a negative note. In fact, the last line, into my rest they'll enter never. Ouch. Nevertheless, those last two stanzas are important and they are instructive. All Scripture is given to us for instruction. And I included them because they make it clear that the two keys of the kingdom are not a New Testament innovation or invention. The preaching of the gospel and discipline, both of these keys existed in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. In Psalm 95, we find good news proclaimed in stanza 3. God is our shepherd. God is the one who keeps His promises. Stanza 4 begins with the call to hear His voice. Listen to Him. And if the people will not hear His voice, believe Him, then there will be consequences. There will be discipline. There will be, as we have it in our book of praise, chastening. You see, the king has always been king. In Article 27 of the Belgic Confession, we confess that we believe that Christ is an eternal king who has never been and never will be without subjects. Yes, there have been advances in His kingdom, especially when He Himself came to earth and then ascended up into heaven as well. But His kingdom has always existed in some measure, in some capacity. And so when Christ entrusted the keys of His kingdom to His church in the New Testament, there wasn't anything that radically different from the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there was also the preaching of the Gospel. The Gospel promises. And there was discipline. In the New Testament, as we heard this morning, we find Israel reconstituted. And as part of that, the keys are passed over to the church. So this afternoon, we'll consider what we confess in Lord's Day 31 under the theme, the church has received keys from her king. We'll consider, first of all, the identity of those keys, and then we'll also have a look at the manner in which those keys are to be used. I was talking about keys. Keys and locks and doors, they go together. A key is what makes, is what makes a door with a lock functional. And here we're talking about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now that expression, keys of the kingdom of heaven, the catechism takes that from Matthew 16, where Christ himself says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The image there, the picture, is of a uh, a city with a wall around it, and that city has in that city wall there is one door, a gate, and the only way in or out is with a key. With the key, the door can be opened from the inside, so that people can be let in, or it can also be closed from the inside. So that those who have been placed outside, they stay outside. And those who are outside also stay outside. What about the kingdom of heaven? What, what is that exactly? 
Well, if we put it as simply as we can, the kingdom of heaven is when people live with Christ as their king. It's not a place, but a state of affairs, a way of life or a way of being. The kingdom of heaven is spiritual in nature, not physical. And being in this kingdom of heaven is something to to be desired. It's a positive thing. There are benefits and there are blessings to being under Christ's reign. Among those blessings are things like the, the forgiveness of sins, changed life, and a promise of eternal glory in the age to come. These are things that we ought to long for, that we would want to gain access to. And the way we do that, the way we gain access to those benefits and blessings is through the keys. According to the Scriptures, there are two keys and they work in different ways. First, we have the preaching of the Gospel. This is when it is publicly proclaimed and announced to every single believer that God has forgiven their sins because of Christ as often as they, by true faith, accept that promise. Note a couple of things here. First of all, it is good news that is proclaimed. What is that good news? Well, it's the the message that the, the, about the forgiveness of sins which reconciles a holy and just God to a sinner because of Christ alone. Beautiful message. What could be better? Salvation by grace alone, full and free for all who believe. So first of all, it's good news that's proclaimed. Second, note that this is a repeated activity. The preaching of the gospel as a key of the kingdom of heaven is a repeated activity. It doesn't happen just once, but it happens over and over again. The catechism says, as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. Each Sunday we we come here and we hear a familiar message. One that we may have heard hundreds of times. Maybe even, for some of us, thousands of times. But each time we hear it, and we say in our hearts, Yes, Lord, I accept that promise. I believe what You say about Jesus Christ as my Savior. Then the kingdom of heaven is open for us. And loved ones, this is why it is so critically important that we hold on to the preaching of the gospel, that we never tire of it. You know, we can't give in to this way of thinking that says, okay, we've heard that already. Give us something different. Or even worse, give us something we can do. Why can't we give in to that? Because, loved ones, it's only the preaching of the gospel which opens the kingdom of heaven. We want to hear what Christ has done for us and respond to that in faith. However, that message of the gospel can also close the kingdom of heaven. 
The promise of the gospel is that there is salvation for all who believe. But there's a flip side. There is a dark side to that promise. And it's that there is divine wrath and condemnation for those who say, forget it. Those, those who say, I'm not going to believe it. For those who do not repent and turn to Christ. And not only for those who are obviously unbelievers, those who would say that they are unbelievers, but also for hypocrites. Hypocrites are literally people who wear a mask. Usually, we don't know who the hypocrites are. But they do. At least I, I think they do most of the time, unless they're very self-deceived. And God definitely knows. As long as they do not repent and believe in Christ, there will be God's wrath and condemnation to deal with, particularly in the age to come, or perhaps now already. Loved ones, each of you, I have to say this as a, as a minister of the gospel, as a minister of Christ, examine your heart this afternoon. Consider carefully Are you a hypocrite? Are you just pretending to be a Christian? Think about it. If you are, I solemnly proclaim to you that indeed the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on you so long as you do not repent and believe. The kingdom of God is closing. Believe the promise of the gospel be saved. If you want to see a good example of all this in action, look closer with me at what we read in 2 Corinthians 2, especially verses 12 to 17. Paul writes here about his ministry and his preaching the gospel. He speaks about how he went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ in, in verse 12. He goes on speaking about that. Through the apostle, the knowledge of Christ was spreading everywhere. It says that in verse 14. He uses an image here which is, is quite striking and it ties into what we heard this morning. He says there, but thanks be to God, verse 14, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. There's an image here that would have been familiar to Paul's original readers in the church at Corinth, but it's probably not familiar to us. The image or the picture comes from the Roman army. When the Roman army would return from a battle, there would be a triumphal procession through the streets. During this procession, one of the things that was often done was the burning of incense. Incense is a substance, when you burn it, it makes a beautiful smell. For those who were on the winning side, the smell of incense was sweet and beautiful. But as the procession went through the streets, 
there were also many captives from the losing side. At the end of the procession, most of them would be ceremonially executed. So for the losers, the incense signaled their impending death as they were paraded through the streets. They would smell that and they would know this is not going to be a good day. And so it is with the preaching of the gospel. It is sweet and it is beautiful to God's people and to God. But to those who are perishing, it's also an aroma, but one that signifies their impending judgment and an eternity in hell. And here again, don't think of those out there in the world. Don't even think about the person on the other side of the pew or on the other side of the church building. Beloved, look into your own heart. What kind of aroma is the preaching of the gospel to you? Is it the smell of death or the fragrance of life? Opening the kingdom or closing? You know, God's Word always has an effect one way or another. It's never neutral. It's never standing still. Think of what, of, of that passage from Isaiah 55-11, where God says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Opening or closing, but never, ever standing still, doing nothing. So that's preaching. The first key of the kingdom. Church discipline is the second. Preaching opens and closes the kingdom. But notice that church discipline does the opposite. It closes and opens. That should alert us right away to the fact that it has a different function. works in a different way. The closing function of the preaching as a key can be a private matter, especially with, with hypocrites. We don't know what, what the Word is doing in their hearts necessarily. The closing function of church discipline is always a public matter. Another difference, preaching is applied to all of us regularly. But church discipline is only applied to some of us, hopefully none, but some of us, some of the time. Church discipline works with those who have already made claims to the effect that they are in the kingdom. They have outwardly professed their faith. Where people who have professed their faith don't live in accordance with that profession that's when discipline needs to be applied. This key of the kingdom begins to do its work, possibly, but hopefully not, with the end result that the individual in question is placed outside of the kingdom. At the end, unless there is a change, the person is placed outside of the congregation and by God Himself from the kingdom of Christ. Very serious. Let's review the process that was laid out by our Lord Jesus. Our catechism says, according to the command of Christ. Well, that command is found in Matthew 18. 
Verse 15 of Matthew 18 talks about sinning against you. Christ was speaking to His disciples. When someone sins against you. So in other words, there is a personal offense. But from other passages, like say for instance James 5.19, we know that there is in fact a broader application here. It can be a sin in general. Not just a, a sin or a personal offense against you. So, Let's say that you see a brother or sister and they're doing something that is clearly a sin. And it has to be very clear that it is a sin. It can't be just your idea or your opinion that what they're doing is wrong. You have to be able to point to what the Bible says. Well, then what do you do? Well, you don't go and talk with other people about it. Matthew 18 is very clear that you have to go and talk about it with your brother or sister. And you do that face to face. That means the telephone is out. Even, well, you can, you can set up an appointment with the telephone, of course, but you don't actually do the admonition through the telephone if you can help it. Even more obviously, email is out too. Telephone and email have no place in a serious matter like this. Neither does Zanga or Facebook or instant messaging or whatever else. You need to sit down face to face, not in front of other people. In private, you talk about it with the other person. You want them to see what they did wrong and you want to see them repent to have a new way of thinking about God, about their sin, and about themselves. And if they've hurt anybody else with their sin, we want to see them go to that other person and seek their forgiveness. Now hopefully they'll listen and they'll do those things. But what happens if they don't? Well, you have to keep going to them over and over, repeatedly. The language of Matthew 18 is such that it is a repeated thing that you do over and over and over again. You don't just do it once and say, well, I did my duty. Now I'll go to the next step. It's a repeated. And if they still don't listen after repeated admonitions, then the Lord Jesus tells us to bring along another believer or two. We have to keep trying to get them to repent of their sins. And if they still won't listen and repent after trying again over and over with somebody else, then and only then, then you bring it to the elders of the church. First you have to try and deal with it on your own. But after you've done everything you can, then you can go to the elders of the church and then they have to deal with it. And again, the, the way you do that, the way you... Uh, Bring it to the attention of the elders of the church, not by sending them an email. You phone them up and you say, can we have a meeting? I need to talk with face-to-face with you about something. And the elders will get involved and they will keep trying to get the person to repent. But if they still won't listen, then certain further steps are followed. First, there is what we call silent censor. That's when a person is withheld from the Lord's Supper. Silently. At this point, nothing is made public. If things don't improve, then the consistory makes what's called the first public announcement. You can find all these uh, announcements at the back of the Book of Praise in connection with the uh, form for excommunication. 
In this first announcement, the name of the sinner isn't mentioned, and the congregation is urged to pray and admonish. You wonder, how can they admonish if the name isn't announced? Well, there will be at least one person in the congregation who knows what it is, and there are probably at least two if the person took somebody from his own local church. So there are there is a small group of people who can admonish. With the second announcement, the church goes to a classis for advice first. And when a classis has heard the case, they will either advise the church to hold off and say, listen, you guys haven't done enough. You have to keep going, keep trying. Or continue, go on to the second announcement. And finally, there's a, a third announcement in which a date is set for excommunication. That means that they will be removed from the fellowship of the church. And again, that means that they are being removed by God, from Christ's kingdom itself. The door to the kingdom of heaven is closed on them, and they are locked out. But that door can be opened again. Church discipline, closing and opening. When the person has a change of thinking about their sins and a change of life which shows that they really believe in Christ then they can be welcomed back into the church. They can confess their sins and they can be readmitted. In our book of praise, we not only have a form for excommunication, which I mentioned a moment ago, we also have what's called a form for readmission. And some of the happiest moments in church life are when that form gets read off. It's beautiful. Then the door of the kingdom of heaven is being opened again with the key of church discipline. We see a clear New Testament application of church discipline in in 1 Corinthians 5. And in this chapter, we don't see a church which has become like the world. Rather, we see a church which has become worse than the world. Even the Gentiles, even the, the world finds incest to be a disgusting and repugnant behavior. But the Corinthian church, they said, ah, it's okay with us. We have no problem with this. Paul had to write to them and, and command them, tell them to get their act together. Notice that he, he doesn't try to explain that, that this behavior is wrong. He doesn't have to. Now he deals with the real problem. The fact that the church won't do anything about it. He tells them they have to act and they have to act promptly and they have to excommunicate this man. Now somebody could read this in in 1 Corinthians 5 and say, well, Paul, what happened to Matthew 18? Some disciple of Christ you are. Well, remember, Matthew 18 applies to situations where there is a private sin. That's why the circle is kept as small as it is at the beginning stages. What we have in 1 Corinthians 5 is something different. It's a public scandal. Not only did the church know about it, probably the rest of the city did too. The church was a laughingstock. This man was unrepentantly living in sin and yet claiming to be part of the church. So long as he would not repent, he was to be dealt with swiftly 
and soundly. There was to be no ambiguity, no second-guessing in the church or the world about his status. That's why Paul concludes that chapter with his admonitions about those who claim to be Christians and yet persistently and clearly continue to live in sin. Believers are not to associate with them. It has to be loud and clear that there's something wrong with this situation. Not normal. It's not acceptable. Both officially and unofficially, the church cannot tolerate people blatantly thumbing their noses at God and His holiness. And that brings us to consider the manner in which the keys of the kingdom are to be used. As we look at church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, we find what the purpose and driving motivation for this discipline is in verse 5. The end it says, so that His Spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Discipline is meant to be redemptive in character. To be driven by love. That's also the reason why Lord's Day 31 is the last Lord's Day in the section about our redemption. The keys of the kingdom of heaven, both of them are designed for our salvation. And both are to be administered with love. Now discipline is a hard sell today. Many corners of the Christian world, you don't have to look too far, Implementing church discipline would meet with howls of protest and even anger. We can, we can be thankful, not proud, but thankful that our Reformed churches still have this biblical practice. We have to hold on to it. It's under attack today. And as for those who, who find it to be unloving, intolerant, or judgmental, We can only imagine what the Apostle Paul might have said to such people. Perhaps he would ask them whether the doctor is unloving when he or she tells you that you need surgery right away or you're going to die. Do we want to have a doctor who tolerates cancer cells, bacteria, viruses? And if we, for some bizarre reason, think that the kinds of things that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 are not harmful and not destructive like viruses and bacteria and cancer, then we have to ask the question, do these things really build up or do they destroy? And most importantly of all, what does God's Word say? Loved ones, administered in the biblical fashion, Discipline is an act of love, both for the individual sinner, for the congregation as a whole, and ultimately and most importantly, for the glory of God. Preaching the gospel is also an act of love. That's also a key that has to be administered in the manner of love. That's probably more obvious than than with discipline. After all, we're bringing good news. But that doesn't mean that people always recognize it as love, just as with discipline. And while this is more of a point that the ministers of the gospel have to consider, it's worth noting, I think, for, for all of us. In Acts 20, very moving passage 
where Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. He said towards the end, So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And when he was about to go on his way, what a scene. They all hugged and they kissed and they they wept. There were tears everywhere. What love Paul had for them and, and they for him. And that love must come through in the preaching. And, and from what we, we read in 2 Corinthians 2, it did for Paul, not only in Ephesus, but also in Corinth. And so the manner of both preaching and discipline has to be in the first place, and most importantly, with love. So let me encourage you, when you are about to admonish somebody, it's difficult to do. You have to do it. Examine your heart first. Is it driven by love? And while I prepare and while I preach my sermons, I too have to examine my heart to ensure that I am addressing you out of love. Love for you. And when we're sure that love is the fuel driving our engines, we can speak and we can act with integrity and Christ will use us. We will be His instruments. Loved ones, we can be thankful that Christ has given us these keys. We can be thankful for the preaching of the Gospel. Without it, how would we know Christ? We can be thankful for the discipline of the church. Without it, how would Christ draw us back to Himself should we stray? In both of these things, we see the wisdom of our Savior and we see His love for us. Let's be thankful and let's be earnest and diligent so that the preaching is always opening the kingdom for us. And so that it, the preaching, and discipline, that they never close the kingdom on us. Let's pray. Lord God, our shepherd and our defender, we praise you for the love and wisdom you've shown to your flock. We thank you for the preaching of the Holy Gospel and for church discipline. Lord, we praise you for the promise of the Gospel that you have really forgiven all our sins because of Christ as often as we accept that promise. Lord, we do accept it and we do believe it. Please grant that for each and every one of us, the preaching of the gospel would only open the kingdom. We pray that there would be no unbelievers or hypocrites in our midst. But if they are here, we earnestly pray for them that you would convert them and save them. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord God, please don't allow any of your sheep here to stray. But if they do stray, we pray that we would have the love and courage to go after them with the key of church discipline. We pray that that key would be an instrument in your hand to keep your church in your ways. That we would be holy as you are holy. 
Please work among us with Your Spirit and Word so that we would always be a people who are honoring You. May Your holy name never be blasphemed because of us. Father, forgive all our sins and help our unbelief. We pray in Christ our Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.